welcome to the Rebel Educator Podcast, where we talk to students, educators, and thought leaders who are innovators and creatives in education. I'm your host, Tanya Sheckley. Thanks for joining us. Welcome, everyone. I'm here today with Fabienne Bales. She's an educational expert with over 20 years experience. Her mission is to change the face of education, embedding well-being into the curriculum to create an environment where both students and staff flourish and develop the mental agility and resilience to succeed both academically and in the workplace. She is the author of The Flourishing Student, Every Tutor's Guide to Promoting Mental Health, Well-Being, and Resilience in Higher Education, and co-author of How to Grow a Grown-Up. Welcome, Fabienne. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to have this conversation. I'd love to hear more about your book and more about how we as educators go about promoting mental health, especially in this time coming out of COVID and we're seeing so much more stress and anxiety. So can you talk a little bit about that? So I'll start by saying I don't have all the answers. <laughs> um, <laughs> starting, I'll start with that. I don't have all the answers and I don't think there's a magic wand is what I would start with. I would say that post-COVID more than ever, I agree with you. I think we need to do something about our young people's stress. And I think the work, the area of work I do is not so much around mental ill health, but around flourishing. So how do we, uh, when we encounter challenges in life, how do we cope with them? What can we do to look after our well-being? What strategies can we use? And these will be very different from individuals to individuals. There are areas. So in my first book, I basically came, came up with a model through the interviews that I carried out with, with 10 students. And this model is, you know, there are areas that flourishing students focus on. Um, so we can help people by helping them to look at those areas and see where they may need help. But yeah, so the work I do is usually is, is what is known as salutogenic. So it's more preventative, not pathogenic, which is looking at the causes of mental ill health, but salutogenic. How do we look after our well-being and what can we do to make sure that we don't lose that well-being, that we don't end up potentially in the mental ill health category? Yeah, I think that's really important and something that a lot of us lost track, I think, of focusing on over the past 18 months. I know for me, it's extremely important, even as an entrepreneur with a new business, and everybody talks about how you need to work 80 hours a week and stay really focused. But if I don't take pretty frequent breaks, and for me, it's getting into nature, like I need a good tree bath, I need to be disconnected from my cell phone, preferably somewhere where there's no signal, so I can't even be tempted to use it or get on email. And I need to do that for two or three days every few months just to recharge and keep myself going. So how do you help people find those things to keep themselves healthy? Okay, so I think nature is definitely a big one for a lot of us human beings. I think it's because when we were tribal, we were so connected to nature that it's almost like plugging back in, right? 
If I talk to you through the model that I came up with through sort of interviewing uh, the young people, hopefully that will help you and the listeners understand. So flourishing students, what, what I did is I, I realized that some of the students who came to university were encountering challenges, some of them really big challenges, but some of them had enough resources to counterbalance those challenges and others didn't have enough of the resources. So if you imagine a bit of a seesaw, well-being being in the middle, if you don't have enough resources from uh, you know, in your toolbox to compensate the big challenges that you experience, then, you know, your well-being in the middle, that ball will just fall off and it, it becomes an issue. So that's the first thing. So do we have resources in our toolbox? A little bit like a plumber would have a, a toolbox to go and mend whatever they've got to mend. So it's a toolbox for our well-being. And what I discovered is you know, each individual. So the image I use is we in an institution, we are all flowers and plants. So depending on what type of flower or plant we are, we will need different things. If you're a climbing ivy, you will need a different environment. So a climbing wall, for example. If you're an orchid, you might need an environment that's slightly more caring and, you know, more shaded, not direct light, etc. So first of all, it requires the individual to understand what type of plant they are. What am I as an individual and what are my specific needs? So, you know, what I loved about what you described is you very clearly know yourself and you know that you need to be away from your cell phone and away from emails. I would argue that, unfortunately, our system doesn't empower young people to know themselves. So have, first of all, enough awareness of noticing that maybe the, the challenges they're facing is calling or asking a lot of their resources and so therefore they're not you know they're not aware so it starts with awareness but it also starts on the understanding who am I as an individual what type of plant am I and then what I do is I talk him about talk people through the model so the model is, is the model of a flower you start with your roots so the roots are the bottom are contain your uh, beliefs, your values, your past experiences. If you've had really traumatic experiences, that will come through to your stem, which is your mindset. And the mindset is literally focusing uh, a bit on Carol Dweck's work, so in a growth or fixed mindset. So what I noticed is a lot of flourishing students will say, it's hard, but, you know, I'm trying and I'm doing my best, but I'm not fixed. I'm not, you know, this person, my, my personality is not fixed. And actually I can, I can change and do something differently. Uh, you'll have two leaves. So one is the life skills and the other one is the academic skills. And then going up, you know, the petals. So you have the five petals, which is first one is cognitive health, physical health, emotional health, and then social health and what I call spiritual health. And then the other five are now, I understand what they are, and that's why I'm writing the second edition of the book. They're actually uh, what I would call cultural agility or competence, and those are curiosity, openness, uh, resilience, flexibility, and the language that a flourishing student uses is different from a languishing student. So flourishing students, as I said, is more likely to say, okay, yes, sometimes this is tough. But, you know, I'm going to try and find resources or what can I do to help myself? Whereas a languishing student is more likely to say it's too difficult for me and 
sometimes swiftly followed by please do it for me really just empowers people to have a look at you know are you open and are you curious you know how resilient are you those are things that we can ask ourselves how flexible are you you know there's a lot of link between uh, uncertainty tolerance or intolerance and actually anxiety so the more intolerant we are to uncertainty and change the more likely we are to be more anxious about the future and what's going on for us so these are the overall model really and I don't know if you've got any questions that sounds amazing (laughs) Um, and definitely like I'm picturing the flower as you're talking and trying to figure out how all these petals fit together and it's something I mean, for myself, definitely as I get older that I have to remind myself to stay curious because I tend to rely so much on experience and what I know or what I think I know that remembering to continue to ask questions and be curious is really important. And I think something that a lot of younger people do more naturally. Yes. And I would probably argue that unfortunately the current system doesn't really encourage that curiosity as much as I would like it to be encouraged personally. So in the UK, certainly what's happened is we've moved to a knowledge rich curriculum, um, with a direct instruction. Um, so this is what Professor Guy Claxon called Descartes. So directly instructed knowledge rich curriculum. Um, and I really like that word because what it does is it, you know, the knowledge, it's all about what you know and, you know, all the information you, you hold. Um, and that's what the system does. It tests people on their knowledge and their understanding of that knowledge. And the problem with, for me with that is that the more attached we are to our knowledge, the more we think we know the answer or the more we think there is a right answer and it's at the back of a book, then that attachment literally prevents us from being curious. It stops us from asking questions and saying, am I right? We just literally go, I know I have the answer. And I think the problem with that is, well, COVID, if anything, has showed us that we don't have the answers (laughs) and and that life can throw things at you one minute you're absolutely fine so you know before we jumped on this call I was telling you how my son hurt himself yesterday at rugby and I didn't see that coming you know so from one minute to the next you might be absolutely fine the next minute you find yourself in the most challenging of situations you think that there is a set answer and if you think that you know the answer for sure or when when something like COVID hits what do you do? Because we didn't have the answer for COVID and we had to be curious and we had to just ask, okay, well, and, and, and accept, you know, that flexibility around uncertainty that I mentioned previously. Let's, let's take a step back a minute. And you were talking about the education system and really being knowledge based. You know, as a society, I think we built that system in a time when we all had a stack of encyclopedias on the bookshelf that we couldn't carry around with us. And so we needed to have this, you know, base, and we still need a base of knowledge, but we needed to have a wide range of knowledge because it wasn't readily available to us. But now it is. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes, 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 absolutely. And I'm, I'm not saying knowledge is not needed. Oh, no, I no. want my doctor or the doctor is going to treat my son 
to understand what a fracture looks like, right? So you want people who understand, you know, doctors to know how to operate on you. So you need to have that knowledge for sure. Yeah, but what's the next step? How would we improve upon the current education system to better set up our future young people? So the next step is we need, uh, you know, what you were describing, the, the education that you and I assume received when we were children was because, like you said, we had encyclopedias and not mobile phones that we could carry with all the information or Alexas and series who could give us the answer. And I think it's a model, the current system that we are still using is a model that is based on colonialism. It was built on literally wanting Prussians of soldiers, good obedient soldiers initially, and then good factory workers. This is our grandparents' economy. We need to move to our grandchildren's economy. What are they going to need when they're older? The education is not just for now, it's actually in the future. Do we want them to be global citizens and to be able to connect with others? And so I would argue that what we need to prepare our young people for is the world of the 21st, you know, 22nd century. And those will require, you know, no more hierarchies where there's somebody at the top telling everybody what they've got to do, but actually building networks, connecting with others. I mean, look at how connected we are now through Zoom and through all the the technology, that's not going away. That is going to stay and, and because it's a good thing. For me, the way we move is we move to thinking about the, our grandchildren's you know, economy. What do we need to prepare them for? I love metaphors. They, they help me make sense of things. So I often say, if you think of your children as, as a bird and the baby bird in the nest, that at some point will want to fly off and be a, a fully fledged adults that can, you know, perform and make an impact in their community, local and global. Then you need to make sure that your bird has two wings, the wing of knowledge and the wing of what I call wisdom. And through wisdom is all the skills that we need to being able to communicate, being able to be open and curious, all of those things. And at the moment, I would argue that a lot of students who arrive at university have the wing of knowledge that's really strong and sort of like flapping quite strongly, but the wheel of skills really, really little. And so what you have is a bird that's not got two great big wings that can just help them soar and become independent. I would argue or sort of have a pledge of let's just help them develop both we need both. It's not one that's better than the other. And it's about sort of the middle way, really helping them find how they they use those two aspects. Yeah, I had a conversation last year where we were talking about a course at the university at Berkeley here in the Bay Area that they actually offer an adulting course hmm. for these students who are new to college and have all of the knowledge that they need. And, you know, they passed all the tests, they wrote the letters, they passed the interviews, they got in, but now they don't have the skills that they really need to successfully live there and balance their student life and life life and for some of them work life and how to make all those things work. Yes, 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 yes. It's true of many young people. And this is why Dominic and I wrote How to Grow Grown Up. I think one of the things that's not often mentioned is that it's not just the schooling system's fault. I think we parents 
have to also look at ourselves in the mirror and talk about, you know, think about how we approach the parenting and the education we give our children. Very often when I have to make a decision, and sometimes it's a bit of a challenging decision as a, as a mother, I always think, okay, am I going to choose the short-term or the long-term benefit of this? And if you ask yourself this, sometimes you then think, well, what am I actually raising here? Am I raising a, a child or am I raising an adult that can contribute to their community and live well? And sometimes that requires of us as parents to make decisions that are not easy to make. And we have to say no and we have to make, let them make the mistakes or experience some of the challenges that sometimes we have a tendency to want to, you know, protect them from. So, and I often like to use this example. So when my, my eldest was probably about seven or eight. Um, they were going to French school here in, in, in Bristol one day a week. We're from in the English school. And in this French school, they didn't have uh, facilities to offer lunch. So to make lunch, you had to bring your pack lunch. And my son would go on a Friday and that specific Friday was going to his friend's house after school for a sleepover. And so he remembered to pack his Nintendo and the charger for the Nintendo. Um, and I'd made the pack lunch and it was in the, the fridge. And the deal was I make the pack lunch because you're still little and that's fine. You can help me if we want. But I do that. It's in the fridge. It's for you to lift it out of the fridge and put the freezer pack. You can do that. And we got in the car. He had all his things. And then halfway up the motorway, he said to me, oh, I forgot my lunchbox. And at that point... He said, please turn around and get my lunchbox. And I just said, no, I'm sorry, darling. I am not going to turn around this car. And even though every single fiber of my body is telling me turn around and get his lunchbox, if I do that, I'm going to deprive you from a very good opportunity to learn from what's happened here because you thought of packing the charger for your Nintendo. So you understood that that would run out of charge over the weekend. If I go and rescue you now and get your lunchbox, then you'll think mummy's always going to be here to rescue you. And sadly, I can't promise you that. I can't promise I'll be always there. And to be honest, we then solutions of found a solution. So he then talked to the teacher and we worked it out. But the good thing is he's never, ever forgotten his lunchbox. Okay. So there you go. <laughs> Yeah, we, we talk a lot about natural consequences in our house as well. If you forget your lunchbox, you might not have lunch that day. And I'd, I'd like to say that it has never happened again. My son forgets his lunchbox, not frequently, but more often than I would prefer. And whenever my husband will bring it, if he, if he can get out of work, if he doesn't have meetings, he'll run it over to the school. I can't go get it, and he knows that, so... Yeah. If he can't bring it, then there's a natural consequence. You've got to ask your sister for food or maybe I have a snack in my drawer and maybe I don't, but <laughs> we've got to find yeah. another solution. And those sorts of things like, you know, forgetting shoes is another big one in our house. Since we live in Northern California, most of the year you don't need to wear shoes. And so we'll get somewhere. I'm like, well, put your shoes on. It's like, oh, I don't have any shoes. I'm like, well. Then you have to wait here. I'll see you in a little bit. <laughs> you can't come in without shoes. <laughs> and I think what what's good about that is that eventually they they will 
you know, develop the, the ability, if it really matters to them, it, it's about that intrinsic motivation. If we keep, as parents, giving them uh, either a stick or a carrot to do something, then, you know, you, you're, we're not tapping into the natural intrinsic motivation, which is absolutely drives everything we do. And so it's helping them tap into that and to realize how important it is because we inbuilt for that, for that intrinsic motivation. You know, I think we, we lifelong learners. Um, and it's the same for that curiosity. And the more you get external intervention, the more you just almost destroy that intrinsic motivation and, and you're then constantly looking for the sticks or the carrots or somebody else to help you. Uh, find what you you're interested in so and and you know it sort of goes back to what I was saying about understanding yourself if if you don't go and explore what you like or you don't like then you how will you know what you like and you don't like right yeah that's really interesting because we talk a lot about how to build that intrinsic motivation and how to find it within our students in our school, we do a lot of project-based learning and there's a lot of space for exploration and interest and curiosity and, and following those things. And sometimes it's hard to get a student to even like think about what they might be interested in mm. without somebody telling them like, this is what you need to study. Here's your topic. But to actually draw that out of them. And we talk about that challenge and that difficulty. Um, but I hadn't looked at it from the perspective of that that's actually building that intrinsic motivation because then they do find a thing they're interested in and then they learn from that and you get that reward cycle internally from doing your own work instead of from someone else asking you for work and then telling you you did a good job. Yes, to me that's all for you. So you can call it intrinsic motivation, you can call it autonomous you know, motivation, whatever you want to call it. We have that from birth. So, you know, I often say to people, as a mother, when you were carrying your baby, you didn't have to say to your child, now grow your fingers, now grow your ears or whatever. That just naturally happened. And, and that's assuming that it, we're talking about a child who developed, you know, normally. And I'm, I'm quoting normally, you know, what are the norms? We could talk about that and that's the subject. <laughs> it's of another, another show. Podcast. Yeah, another <laughs> podcast. But you know, that's assuming that you you had there was not development mental delays or anything. So that all happened naturally. And actually, in the same I often use this example. Um at home we speak French and English, and the boys learn to speak French through me speaking to them in French and them responding. I didn't have to give them a stick or a carrot or a little sticker saying, well done for speaking French. They just picked up both languages naturally. And we are, as human beings, we are wired. We, we're naturally curious. We want to make sense of things and, and to grow and develop. That's how we've got to where we are. And we've, that's why we've got all the technology we have, all the amazing things we are. It's when the system is forcing kids to do things that they're not interested in uh, or when we're telling them you have to do this that I think the danger is you almost decondition the children to be curious, lifelong learners. I mean, I don't know if you know, I'm sure you may know people, but it saddens me when I hear people who sort of leave school and burn their their books and go, no more 
we should leave school being even more curious and wanting to learn more, right? It's a, it should give us a real passion for learning, for lifelong learning. And that's where I would like, you know, you were sort of saying, what's the future for education? To me, it's that. It's sort of, we need to continue to help from the two-year-old who, uh, you know, you don't need to give them a stick and a carrot to stand up and start crawling and then stand up and walk. And they fall and they hurt themselves, but they keep standing up and trying to walk. So why do we not, you know, and, and with adult education, we, we encourage adults to tap into their interests to then go and learn. So why is it that we don't do that in between those years in the primary and secondary? I'm not quite sure. You know? <laughs> yeah, I'm not quite sure either. I mean, it goes back to part of what you were saying about educating to create soldiers or educating to create workers. Mm. And we set up a system in that method. And now that we have that system, it's so hard to deconstruct and to change or to shift into something new and different. Yes. And also because I guess for some people, usually people who are in, in power, the system has worked really well for them. So they have been okay. They've done okay through the system that we currently use. And so it's one of the thing of, you know, that just that knowledge, well, it's worked for me, so it's going to work for everybody else. And, and very clearly it's not. So we need to rethink and to use, you know, even the neuroscience. So all of the things that we now have as, as a basis of, okay, so how do we change education so we can help young people? To me, it, it completely baffles me. So I was talking about flowers. On how we are all different flowers and plants in, in the garden. You know, neuroscience tells you that none of us has the same brain. We all have a completely, you know, yes, okay, you've got, we all have a brain. And if you look at it, you could argue that it looks the same, but we all unique individuals. And so the way our brain functions is never going to be exactly the same. So why do we think that we should educate our children exactly in the same way, like cookie cutters, sort of like, you know, every child's the same and he's doing the same? It doesn't make sense. And it, to me, it doesn't make sense that we don't use that in education. All of that knowledge that we have and all of that research and all of that understanding to change, it, it doesn't make sense. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And that's what we're working on, right? How do we change? How do we bring more mindfulness? How do we make sure that we're growing grownups that can be capable global citizens? And how do we shift our educational methods towards that? I have one more question for you. And it's a question that I love to ask everyone because I run an elementary school. So can you share a story that you remember from your elementary school years? So I remember... My sister and I are so 19 months apart from when they so were quite, quite close. Mm -hmm. And my parents worked really hard. So dad worked in a factory and mum worked in a um, supermarket. So very often we would come home from school, having walked to school and sort of like back. Um, and we'd be the, the two of us. And my best memories of those years are my sister and I going into the little woods where where we lived and there was a little river 
When I told my parents, age of like 23, that that's what we were doing, they were obviously horrified because they had no clue that's what was going on. Um, But we would literally, with loads of friends from the area where we lived, go there and we would split a river. I mean, when you think about it as an adult, you just think, oh my God, how could this have gone completely wrong so many times? Um, (laughs) But you know what? The fun thing about that is that we were all together as young people, um, having fun, laughing. Very often, some of us would come back with no socks because we would have lost the socks in the river or something like that. But it was really fun. And I also remember before I could you know, read the clock and see what the time was, my dad said to me, I want to teach you something. So when your um, shadow becomes really, really, really long, I want you to come home. And so that's what I used to do. I used to check my shadow and if it was getting really, really, really long, then I knew that it was getting darker or sort of like getting later. And so I would come home with my sister. And so you were saying, how do we grow grown-ups? I think I would sort of use that as an example. I think we don't need to overprotect our children. And I know many parents, you know, many parents are scared because we've got technology and I know that there are, you know, people who don't have great intentions. I'm not deluded. Okay. But I think it's really important that we allow our young people to go out, take risks, take healthy risks. And to really, you know, develop their abilities to, you know, almost like use your sense of, oh, that doesn't feel quite right. And so I'm not going to go there because that's what we need. We need, you know, we need our young people to experience some of the challenges to be able to then, you know, be the, you know, global citizen who's able to communicate with others and to contribute to their, to their local and global communities. So. Yeah, I think that's what I would say. Yeah, we need to make those tough decisions and not shelter them, but offer those opportunities of, I want to say protected challenge, but protected's not the right word, but where you're allowing them to take that risk, but there's really, you know, in actuality, not a great risk involved. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. And it's a, it's a calculated risk. Yes, that's a better word. So I'm not saying allow your kids to do what I did as a child. Maybe that's not quite, you know, <laughs> I'm not sure my parents would actually have allowed me to do what we did uh, if they'd known what we were up to. It's allowing them to A, think it through and B, sort of decide, okay, yeah, okay, I'm going to try and do this and and learn from what the outcome is. We need to allow them to cross roads and we need, need to help them manage. We've got some students who arrive at university and they've never been on, on the bus. So they've never ever navigated to public transport because their parents have taken them here, there and everywhere. Mm-hmm. That's an example. You know, you can allow your children to start navigating the public transport system so they can, when, when they go to university, they know how to get themselves or to navigate it, you know. Underground or, 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 you know, a bus, I guess, and a map. Yeah. I had never taken a bus when I went to university, but I grew up in a small rural town where there was no bus. So okay. I wasn't learning to do that wasn't an option. But thank you. Thank you, Fabienne, for your time. How can people get in touch with you? 
Um, I'm quite active on LinkedIn. I'm quite like LinkedIn. I think it's a great platform. Uh, and my my handle is flourishing he. And then I'm also on Instagram, although I don't use it as much, under Flourishing Education, so edu, E-D-U, um, and then on the website, flourishingeducation.co.uk. And I also I also have a podcast that people can listen to, the Flourishing Education podcast, and like you invite all sorts of, of people discussing uh, all things education, so they can also listen to that if they want. Wonderful. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us today, Fabienne. This has been wonderful. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It was lovely. Thank you for listening to the Rebel Educator podcast. To learn more about us, visit rebeleducator.com, where you can learn about our professional development opportunities for educators and students and see our project library. If you're in the San Francisco Bay Area, check out our progressive, inclusive elementary school, Up Academy at upacademysf.com. We'd like to say a special thank you to Atmosphere for use of their audio track, Miho. Thanks again for joining us, and we wish you well no matter where your educational journey may lead.